This is My Rain Gauge is Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Ethan, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, Gemma and I, along with our two special guests, discuss frost. While some industries like stone fruit require chill time, for the grain growing regions of southeastern Australia, frost is a significant risk to their productivity. Frost continues to be a subject of much research, as explained by Dale Gray and extra special guest Peter Heyman, team leader of the Climate Applications Team at the South Australian Research and Development Institute, commonly known as SARDI. Understanding how we measure frost can greatly assist in understanding the possible consequences in paddock. As Dale explains, temperature can vary greatly across an area. So frost is measured, not surprisingly, using a thermometer to measure a minimum temperature. And historically, or since 1910 in Australia, that's been taken in what's called a Stevenson screen, which is a white slatted box that's roughly one and a half metres off the ground. Interestingly enough, useless fact for the day starting early, uh, a Stevenson screen was invented by Robbie Lewis Stevenson's dad, who was the author. Raising the temperature probe off the ground to take the temperature is really important because that changes the temperature compared to what it would be on the ground. Farmers would know that temperature dramatically changes with altitude. And it really does because rising your temperature probe one and a half metres off the ground is enough to change the temperature by 2.2 degrees. So people might have often seen that the definition of frost is 2.2 degrees and wondered, surely it's zero. And and that's right. No, things things only freeze at zero. But when it's 2.2 degrees in the slatted box above the ground, that's when it's commonly zero degrees at ground level. Hence, you get that difference. But that's the amazing thing that, to me anyway, that that a one and a half metre difference in the altitude changes the temperature by 2.2 degrees. I remember reading in a book from the Bureau that if you take your dog for a walk on a really cold night, it's walking through a much colder envelope of air than most of you are. And if you take your dog for a walk on a really hot day, it's walking through a much hotter envelope of air. So we sort of, even under these very, very small distances of a few metres, we get this inversion where it's colder at the surface and warmer aloft. The wine industry in New Zealand and in Tasmania use helicopters to push down the warmer air. So they're using helicopters that they have hang around in that time to just push that warmer air down. When people use smudge pots or something in horticulture, it's not to heat the air, it's to create circulation and let the warmer air above and this blanket of really dense cold air move. So PhD student Bonnie Stuzel working with Ben Bidoff in WA showed really nicely that in a wheat trial, if you have a tall variety next to a short variety, you'll be incredibly careful because you can just get this air spilling off the taller variety onto the shorter variety and mucking up your results on a really frosty night. So these differences are happening over sort of a micro scale, aren't they? And that's where farmers see the influences of frost really changing dramatically with height and elevation. Generally, that cold air is denser, it weighs more, and it travels in the lowest parts of the landscape along, you know, creeks, lines and river valleys, but it could be just the lower parts of your paddock. And that small differences in elevation can be the difference between frost perhaps causing damage and forming versus it not having any effect on the crop at all. As Dale and Peter have already touched on, it's not only height that can affect temperature, but also physical topography and barriers within a paddock. 
So the zero degree temperature at ground level can be affected by lots of things, such as stubble cover or insulative layers on the soil can affect the temperature. And interestingly enough, the science tends to show that stubble layer tends to make it colder because usually during the day, the sun is beating into the ground and the soil takes up heat and it lets that heat go back during the night, which tends to prevent frost. But when that temperature escaping back at night is not warm enough and it goes below zero, a layer of stubble on the ground can help to insulate and not allow the heat back out and cause the temperature to be lower than might normally be. The other thing that can affect the temperature is soil colour. Surprisingly enough, uh, black soil takes up more heat because it's dark compared to white sandy soil. So it doesn't take up as much heat uh, as well. And then the other thing is really just the moisture content of the soil. The more moisture that's in the soil, the more it is able to take up heat. Totally dry soil is very insulative. It doesn't take up heat as much as moist soil. So we tend not to see frost forming at ground level when we have moist soil, particularly in dark grey self-mulching clays if it's able to give that heat back up during the night. But there's, you know, there's plenty of things in between that change that. Sometimes it's impossible to avoid the fact that a frost is going to form, even if you have moist soil and a dark soil and perhaps no stubble cover. You just, you, the conditions are such that you're just going to get a frost anyway. There are a few key things needed for a frost event to occur. So frost forms when some pretty specific things are in the case. And the first thing you really need is cold air. Uh, and cold air, if you're at the top of Falls Creek or Mount Hotham, is quite common because you've got altitude to cause your cold air. But in the flatlands where we're growing crops, most of the time the air is not cold, but it gets colder overnight because the sun disappears and we get radiation of the heat that's built up over the day disappearing out through the sky at night uh, and the temperature drops at ground level. What the predetermining condition for frost often is, though, is that we get this injection of very cold air just before the frost. And some of that air might be coming from Antarctica, or it has originated in Antarctica. And somewhere before sort of, you know, 12 o'clock midday in the late afternoon, you suddenly get this injection of cold air, usually at the front of a high pressure system with a southwesterly wind, which lowers your temperature already. So that when you get that radiation during night, you drop to a lower temperature than you would have because you're starting at an already lower point. And the other critical thing is that you have to have a, a lack of wind. Um, you can't get frost formation when it's windy. So that's why people are starting up their helicopters in horticulture. And now sadly, we can't do that in broad acre. But when it's windy, and if you're in a windy location of Australia, often a lot of coastal areas tend not to get frost, um, a little bit more wind activity. But in the inland areas, particularly, you know, you get that injection of cold air at the front of the high, and then the high moves across that evening, and you're suddenly in the middle of the high pressure system, and there is no wind at all, and you get that re-radiation of heat back out to space and dropping the temperature down lower than it normally would be. I'd say the more important distinction is in Australia, we're dealing with radiation frosts. That's not to say there isn't any advection going on. Whereas if people are reading some things from, say, North America or Europe, they have these freezes where you can get frost and wind. And again, it doesn't really matter where you stick your thermometer if there's a freeze happening because you've got this icy blast coming from the Arctic. And, and that does a lot of damage in horticulture and crops in the northern hemisphere. What we're dealing with are much milder conditions, but then just this 
very cold night because we're getting the outgoing radiation, which, as you say, you can almost feel that happening as that sun goes down around 5.30 or something. You just feel every little bit of warmth is being sucked out because you're equilibrating without a space. The formation of ice crystals that cause damage to crops during a frost event happens in an interesting way. People might be interested to know that you can't get frost forming in a sterile environment. When frost is forming on a plant, at the core of those ice crystals which can cause the damage are a bacteria usually. You need something there to let the ice particles start and they're normally called an ice nucleating bacteria. Uh, So when the temperature gets cold enough, that little physical imperfection that's around the plant allows ice to start to form around that and to start to form crystal. And of course, the problem is with frost, why it causes damage, is that when that ice crystallization occurs in between the cells of the plant, you get ice crystals forming and they physically puncture the sides of the walls of the cells. And when things melt, the contents of those cells are all mixed up in cactus and why we see physical death of plant material when that occurs. Uh, It's interesting that when you see white frost, though, sometimes you see white frost on the outside of a plant, but the inside of the plant can actually be okay. It's actually managed to cope all right, and you actually haven't physically got ice formation in between the cells of the plants. So it's only when you get ice forming inside the plant uh, and fracturing the cells that you get that really, you know, normally by lunchtime that day, you will see the effects of the rapid death of that cellular tissue due to the fact that the cell walls have been irreparably injured. I mean, certainly the rain coming in before the frost can also be physically bad because you get water droplets trapped in the oracles and the leaf stems of the plants. So you actually get physical freezing of ice in parts where you normally wouldn't see it. So you sometimes see the ring burn frost where the head dies because it's actually been burnt off by that little droplet, um, you know, the flag leaf or something. Troy Fredrickson in Queensland sort of has this quiz. He worked in frost for a long time. He has this quiz of um, is zero the freezing point of water? And we all say yes, but actually it's not. Freezing is the melting point of ice. So if you want to calibrate a bit of equipment at exactly freezing, you have an ice bath where ice is melting in water, and that's exactly zero. The extraordinary thing is that water can be in liquid form a lot colder than freezing. And many of us have done this experiment by putting beer in the freezer and it is liquid and then you pull it out and then suddenly it turns to ice. And that's a useful experiment to do to show that it can get a lot colder and still say liquid. When you move it, suddenly it nucleates and you get the ice forming. While it makes sense that ice crystals cause damage, the damage is not the same for each variety. What's interesting is that the different crops that we grow practically have very different frost thresholds at which we see damage. For instance, um, you know, if you use wheat as a standard, barley classically gets frosted at a temperature that might be two degrees lower than that. Uh, And oats is even more resilient. It has the ability to cope with a temperature that's four degrees lower than that which wheat can get affected. And, And some of these are physical attributes of the nature of barley and oats, the way their reproductive structures are around them when they flower. But some I suspect are different. Some might well be physiological differences in the way they're able to cope. 
been a bit off in WA, some really interesting work. But this sort of conundrum that we know that the relationship between frost damage, as Dale has explained really well, that you know, frost damage is different to cold damage. The bad frost damage we see is largely because of just disrupting cells with the ice crystals. We see a complicated relationship between temperature accurately measured at head height and the level of damage. And so sometimes you get a cold temperature, you don't get the damage, sometimes you do. And, and so we we're talking earlier about how difficult it is to get the temperature right across the landscape. Even if you spent gazillions of dollars measuring that across the paddock, you're then still not knowing exactly whether you could get frost damage. And one reason for that may well be the level of supercooling happening. If you Google supercooling water, there's lots of experiments people show with um, high school experiments of doing this and then dropping something in and suddenly it crystallizes. The supercooling is pretty amazing, the fact that any plant can survive freezing, that we have snow guns. I mean, if you put lettuce in the freezer, it's never a good outcome for the lettuce, whereas you can put these plants that are able to survive incredibly cold temperatures and keep water in them in, in liquid form. And so wheat is able to do that. It just is where this happens. And I think it's watched this space from what's happening in WA as to understand that. And this is well understood in some horticultural crops and whether you can spray beneficial bacteria that may be able to help with this situation. But it certainly highlights the point that frost is just this incredibly complex thing to measure and predict. And one of those sort of um, complexities is the fact that um, even though we think it might be a really nice threshold problem of as soon as we get zero, it's not a threshold problem. And, and that's probably stochastic across the paddock. So certainly that difference between oats, barley and wheat. One comment some people are making is that barley is probably more tolerant for head frost, but maybe even less tolerant for early grain fill. And one thing I think we have learned about frost is that perhaps in the past we've been overly focused on the frost that happens around anthesis. So that's clearly an incredibly sensitive time and, and experienced farmers in frost-prone areas are very concerned if the wheat's flowering and there's a frost that night, but there's a window that goes quite some time before that and quite some time after that. And that's where less determined crops like uh, canola and so on have, you know, so sometimes people will say that an early frost on canola doesn't worry them much because there's an ability of the crop to just put out more flowers and so on. But a very late frost is much, much more damaging in that situation. There's differences in the phenology and so on. But I think you're right that one of the reasons that oats, it just is a good design in terms of having the panicle the way it is, is probably a good design for dealing with frost. But it's a, um, as people will point out, when you get the incredibly cold night, the really severe frost, nothing much helps. I remember a farmer in Juni told me it took him a long time to work out how well sheep handle frost. So the, the role of livestock and, and even just crops for hay and so on are an important parts of that risk management, which most farmers in frost-prone areas are, are right across. Peter explained that climate drivers do have some impact on frost frequency, but the statistics don't stack up when discussing the final frost of the season. As Dale has explained, we see frost on a still, clear, cold night, and we would expect more clear nights in an El Nino year than a La Nina year. Just there's more nights where we're going to have less cloud cover there. 
And that tends to show the case. In most locations, if you just ask the question, are there more frosts or fewer frosts, or some sort of measure of daily frost sum, like summing up all the days below zero or two degrees, you tend to get a higher number for El Nino than La Nina and for IOD positive than IOD negative. And that's just what you'd expect with cloud cover. If you ask a question about the latest frost, it's not as neat. And I guess it's just as farmers understand that late frost, it's horribly jagged and horribly random and so on. So if the question is, is the year going to have more frosts? El Nino will help you with that. If the question is about the latest frost, it's less clear. Some of the worst late frosts in some locations have been in La Nina years and so on. It's, it's just more random. And I think that's because these late frosts, there's an element of just being these random weather events that come along all whack you sometimes have runs of multiple frosts in those really dry El Nino or positive IOD years, and that's when high pressure is really dominating the climate pattern. And so you're getting those multiple days of injection of that cold air at the front of the high and no wind at night. And so, you know, you're getting those runs of three or four frosts in a row, which you tend not to get in the wetter years when systems are generally moving much quicker across the landscape. Uh, and you might get one frost, but you're unlikely to get sort of two or three in a row because things are changing too quickly in the weather pattern. As most farmers will point out, the dry, droughty spring is the one they worry about the number of frosts. In some ways, it's actually the frost in the good year that really hurts you. And again, I've learned a lot from Mick Faulkner and all this. If you've got a drought and you've got a tonne of wheat or two tonne of wheat or something compared to where people have got five, six tonnes, or, you know, like a paddock of lentils there and so on, and then suddenly whack, it's worth nothing. That frost has proportionally cost the business an enormous amount. Whereas in the extreme drought, it's adding insult to injury, but you've had the injury already from the extreme drought and it's hard, but um, it is some of these frosts that have hit us in these good seasons that are extremely costly. People are right in pointing out that climate change projections show warming of temperatures. But in recent times, southeastern Australia has experienced more frosts. So if you look at quite a few documents on some of the climate change projections for the southern grains belt, it will talk about frost reducing. Yet it is certainly the case, and farmers are right to point out, that they've seen more frost in the last decade in many cases. And that's real lived experience. I guess just a couple of quick comments on that. Firstly, a lot of things are changing. The emphasis on earliness in terms of sowing early and moving to quicker varieties and also the varieties which we are very dependent on are very temperature sensitive. So if the winter and the spring is a bit warmer, they move along much more rapidly. And so you're combining those aspects. Good agronomy grows bigger crops. And as Dale's talked about, the you know stubble cover and, and these big healthy crops and so on are also, all things being equal, favouring the level of damage and so on. So another climate scientist said, oh, well, we'd expect it to disappear within the next 20 years or something. And now, now that's still a long time for a viable grains industry to deal with. I mean, that, that's a very short time in climate history, but that being a lingering problem over that time is still a very significant problem. 
Another said, um, we'd certainly expect heat waves to increase faster than frost to decrease. And especially, as Dale was explaining, these radiation frosts are something that, that are very much linked to what's happening with the synoptic systems and the cloud and so on. So I guess what I'd see is the message is frost is hanging around as a problem. It's really causing significant problems for many, many grain businesses. I'm cautious about saying there's been a step change in the likelihood of frost because I'll go back and say, where's the real data for that and so on. And I don't think we have clear data for some sort of step change in the likelihood of frost. We know things change at a decadal sort of level. We know that it's still lingering there. I think we have to be cautious about being overly confident about what the next stage is. But we certainly have seen in the last decades some really worrying and, and severe frosts. I think the other point is that, I mean, I remember a farmer from the Mallee said, we used to have frost, eelworm, crown rot, all these problems with rotations and better varieties were solved all of other problems. So frost becomes a residual risk, which is hitting people too. So, so I think that's an important consideration. But an important question is, is frost becoming more frequent? I think uh, Steve Crimp from CSIRO and now at ANU has done really interesting work supporting that idea. Perhaps it's because of the, a lot of the, you know, the drier springs we've been having, um, there's been a lack of cloud cover. Or is it, as Dale pointed out earlier, that frost is partly just about the high pressure system, but it's also about this infeed of this very, very cold polar air from a long way south and very high in the atmosphere and, and, that, and drying it out. What is heartening to see is the innovation and intuition that farmers have already shown in tackling risk mitigation when it comes to frost. I think that's where the advent of yield monitoring has really shown quite specifically in many years where the line has been between frost and, and not frost. I know for some people it's allowed them to consider actually taking areas out of production in really, you know, where things are getting frosted every year. Well, why would you keep backing up to get the same results? So, you know, some of those creek line and really low lying areas, some people have actually chosen not to grow sensitive species there at all or chosen only to grow hay or to actually take them out of crop production and just put them in pasture and leave them for that. But it's only when you've got that information that it actually can tell you what those paddocks are and where the lines really are. But they'll be absolutely to do with the elevation of what those paddocks have. I guess an important point is that as farmers know much better than me, hay is a tricky um, enterprise. Uh, in 2019, with the widespread eastern states drought, there were grain crops that were cut for hay because the hay prices were so good. In 2020, with uh, that wet October, it was the opposite. So we had two years recently where you could hardly go wrong with hay in one year, and it was very, very hard to go right with hay the second year. And obviously, it's very much where people are in their enterprise and what they can do. But I think understanding the zoning and looking at those options and so on is an important part of understanding the local landscape and how frost is varying spatially is obviously a really important part. Along with farmers, researchers are trying to provide tools for better and earlier decision making. Ideally, you're looking for something that, you know, within three days of the frost or something is showing up, allowing you to make those decisions. Um, and so whether that's satellite or aeroplane or drone or a combination of those is a bit well, it's uncertain at the moment, but that's where the research question lies as to how you can assess a crop for frost damage uh, remotely and quickly. There are a number of projects looking at how to, to assess the level of damage from frost very quickly. 
for making the decisions about hay, but also what the animal nutrition people will say is the decision of when to graze. Going in quickly has benefits. So Hamish Dixon makes the point that actually responding quickly to after a frost has benefits rather than waiting too long. So quick identification and where to identify, but also a benefit of this identification is obviously the tactical response in that year, but it's also the information about the paddock and going back to Dale's point about zoning into the future, about thinking how that can be used. So the advantage is, if you like, both immediate and tactical for that season, but also strategic for longer-term planning because it's giving you some indication about where that has been and, and the level of damage. Frost can be a significant burden on grain production in southeastern Australia. We hope that in this episode we've been able to explain some of the science behind the phenomena and some of the different things being investigated to assist growers in mitigating the risk. We really appreciate Peter and Dale's assistance with this episode to tease out some of the different aspects of frost. You can find more helpful links in the show notes and you can get in contact with us at v.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. See you next time. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T's And what on earth is an I-O-D? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Oh, this bloke Dale, he's a ridgy dude. He knows about the subtropical ridge. The science comes in a secret code. But he knows about the southern annular mode. Well, this SST anomaly lead us to a death cell of 1, 2, 3. The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before about SOINSSTs. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date and get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? Well, westerly wind bursts blow away. All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Because we have to know about SORs and SSDs. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria.